and gentlemen, I want to begin by thanking Roger and Chris for arranging this conference and for inviting me to take part in it. I've actually been talking and writing about American nationalism ever since I arrived here as an immigrant in 1979. Uh, for a long time, um, that was because immigrants had to do the kind of dirty jobs that the natives won't do, <laughs> in, including or especially American conservatives, who seemed to me at the time to have swallowed an abstract definition of the American people that was both false, insofar as it defined Americanism as a set of liberal principles to which anyone in the world might subscribe, and also dangerous because it was a carrier of multiculturalism. But that has changed dramatically in the last four years. Americans are now talking freely about nationalism. First, because as James Pearson argued this morning, the American nation is under a serious threat of dissolution. Um, secondly, oh, the reason being one of the two main parties now supports policies of de facto open borders, mass migration, multiculturalism, and the elimination of discriminations or any distinction between citizens and non-citizens. Second, because Donald Trump took up the cause of the nation in 2016, and almost all other Republican candidates resolutely refused to do so. Um, um, their self-discipline in rejecting a popular and winning issue was extraordinarily impressive. Uh, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump would not be my favorite poster boy for American for nationalism because he chooses not to articulate the case in depth but he took up the task and others must now develop the case, as this conference, I hope, is doing. My topic today is the left versus the nation. So what do I mean by those terms? Well, nationalism obviously has many definitions, but the one employed here is the concept that people come to share a national identity, mutual loyalty, and a sense of fellowship and common destiny as a result of sharing the same language and culture and of living under the same institutions over a period of time. A nation may have many different historical origins. What matters, though, is that over time, its people come to feel that they're part of the same collective body and feel a loyalty to it and to its symbols, whether the monarchy in the UK or the flag in the United States. Their attachment to the nation comes less from its theoretical virtue than from the experience of living contentedly in a society that reflects your own tastes and experiences and gives you opportunities to realize yourself. A national identity of this kind is largely a taken-for-granted identity uh, rather than a self-consciously <coughs> chosen one. That is, if it's to be an effective force for cohesion. My favorite story illustrating the difference between the theoretical and the real identity comes from the Second World War. Uh, by then, all but the most recent immigrants had become culturally American. So when German commandos, wandering behind uh, the American lines in American uniforms during the Battle of the Bolge, the GIs, in order to test their identity, asked them questions. Not about the First Amendment, not about the Constitution, but questions designed to expose their knowledge or ignorance of American life and popular culture. This produced some remarkable effects. Uh, General Marshall corrected his... Uh, GI Inquisitor uh, claimed that the capital of Chicago was Illinois. Britain's Field Marshal Montgomery imperiously waved the guards aside and they promptly shot out the tires of his car. And actor David, actor David Niven, who at the time was a British commander, on being asked who had won the 1943 World Series replied, 
I haven't got the foggiest idea, but I did star with Ginger Rogers in Bachelor Mother. <laughs> <laughs> so he got through where Montgomery didn't. Now, that's what I mean by the nation. By the left, I mean a variety of political philosophies uh, which see themselves in part as opposed to the existing order of society. Marxist socialists, American progressives, postmodern theorists, European social democrats, now effectively running the EU, and even those constructivist historians whose definition of the nation is a form of undermining it. My argument concedes that the left has been ambivalent over time about the nation. Marx said the worker had no nation and proposed the international, an international proletariat as the true fellowship. But he and Lenin both thought that national liberation movements could play a useful part in hastening the, de the demise of capitalism or feudalism or whatever, and therefore might be supported. But there seems to little doubt that almost all forms of leftism are instinctively and ideologically hostile to the national idea. That's because the nation is both an alternative to their preferred forms of collectivism, class, gender, race, and an obstacle to the achievement of the various goals of the different leftisms. So, Marxists see national loyalties as an obstacle to class loyalties. Progressives see a functioning, self-governing nation as an obstacle to their aim of elite rule by experts. A, a Tocquevillian nation is, in particular, will make them completely unnecessary. Postmodernists, in the mold of Michel Foucault, critical or race uh, legal theorists, see the national idea as a mask of power wielded by the elites they wish to replace. Experience, by the way, suggests the opposite that it is they who wield the power, and that critical race theory is a mask for it. As Andrew Sullivan pointed out, when the American paper of record adopts a critical race theory of slavery as the very essence of America, um, you realize that things have gone a long way in importing academic nonsense from um, the universities into the very heart of American life. Finally, social democrats in Europe see nationalism as an obstacle that gets in the way and obstructs their notions of human equality and blocks the redistribution state. Now let me proceed briefly to cases. First, the constructivist historians. They are particularly important in the British debate over nationalism. They object that this sense of common sympathy is an artificial one socially constructed by governments and built with the help of intellectuals and artists, from Sir Walter Scott to Rudyard Kipling. Their argument is that a new sense of national identity was manufactured in Britain, for instance, by persuading the English, the Welsh, the Scots, and some of the Irish that they were a single overarching people, gifted with Protestant liberty, but in peril from continental Catholic absolutism. And that was certainly the self-understanding of the British probably until the First World War. As the historian Sir Noel Malcolm has pointed out, however, while the process of building that identity may have been artificial, it drew upon real materials. The Catholic powers in 18th century Europe were largely absolutist, and Britain was, by contemporary standards, a free society. Louis XIV, Napoleon, and later Hitler were threats to British independence. This British identity conceived uh, shaped from that corresponded to everyday and political reality as experience living by, experienced by people living at the time and later. If artifice played a part, as it did, uh, 
the, the answer to that, the answer to the constructive historians, is Burke's observation, art is man's nature. Consider also that history is full of manufactured identities that have failed to take. The Soviet, the Yugoslav, the Czechoslovak, and in Turkey, the Kamalist identity, uh, identities are four obvious failures in our own lifetimes. They were rooted not in popular feeling and consent, but in administrative convenience, dynastic ambitions, or in ideological visions that were not shared by the majority of the population. Their failures point up the real successes. Those failures point up the real successes uh, of the British and American identities. And by the way, even the liberal imperial common identity established in the British Empire um, may not have got a lot of attention here, as it did in Britain and elsewhere. But um, look at what the Hong Kong Chinese students were singing and what flag they were recently waving uh, in uh, defense of their liberty. Uh, not all imperial identities, when we look back, were the result of coercion and trickery, as the left tries to maintain. Now, second, as I observed above, several varieties of American leftists are now agonizing about the implications of nationalism. Most, as we see in the Democratic debates, are viscerally opposed to it as a dangerous and reactionary ideology. Some want to give it a qualified endorsement as a form of community that rises above liberal individualism. All are acutely aware that it poses an electoral threat to the acceptance of their ideas in the real world. Roger Rorty first raised this question 20 years ago, but it's still roiling the American left in, for example, Dissent magazine, where Michael Kazin and Araxia Abrahamian, um, the senior editor of the nation, agreed recently in a debate on the need for a world of open borders. But he qualified this with the observation that to get there, we need a strategy. And there is no strategy um, that does not involve persuading a majority of the people in one's nation that you hold their interests close to your heart. Now, I'm grateful to William Vogley to directing my attention to this in his contribution to the symposium on Steve Hayward's essay on nationalism. As Vogley says, there are two problems with the left's analysis here. The first is that the more realistic Kazin is not really telling the truth when he speaks to the American people and promises to put their interests above those of foreigners. He does so really only in the short term. What he's not admitting is that eventually his strategy would lead to an, a, a, a government of the United States subordinating the interests of Americans to those of humanity at large. Uh, John Fonte made that point clearly this morning. But vocally, it seems to me, focuses on a particular angle, which is this arises directly from the, from the basic uh, uh, assumptions of socialist ideas. I quote him. The exchange between Kazin and Habramian, is, Habramian um, reminds us of the fundamental tension in the left project between equality and community. Each is valued. In a perfect world, both would be fully realized. In the real world, however, there are no clear guidelines for synthesizing the two or, be or, be or for choosing between them when they clash. Indeed, there is no criterion that would enable the left to choose equality and com or community with anything like, like, like ideological consistency. That is why they spend their time at the moment agonizing over how much to tell the voters 
in muddling through inconsistently, and finally in ending up, as both John Fonte and William Vogeli point out, in adopting a policy of what is called welfare chauvinism, which in Denmark has consisted of exclusionary nationalism combined with generous support for safety net programs available only to legal residents. I mean, uh, they, they have an, an insoluble dilemma, but I think we know that they are eventually going to wind up choosing human equality over the community of the American people. I will merely add to that the point that a policy rooted in those ideas is, has also, uh, it has no real uh, um, ability to sustain democratic accountability. If, you are, if your policies are based, among other things, on eliminating distinctions between citizens and non-citizens, then you are, in the end, um, uh, going to, um, to, to move in. You're going to sacrifice the interests of your voters to those of a world community of global governance. Let me now turn, finally, to the respectable social democrats who hope to solve these problems, hope to combine these two sets of ideas in a European context or in America in a cosmopolitan multicultural context that they believe will overcome nationalist sympathies that obstruct a global egalitarian outlook. They naturally resist the notion that a shared language, and they have to resist the notion that a shared language and culture are necessary components of nationalism and democracy. When they are faced with the question of what holds the state together, therefore, they offer two answers. One is liberal institutions the other social democratic transfer payments. When faced with the question of what holds the state to, uh, under liberal institutionalism, I'm sorry, um, uh, citizens are held together by a strong state um, that protects their rights and enables them to go about their businesses peacefully. They therefore, for that reason, owe the state their loyalty. Unless it brutally oppresses constituent groups, they have no right to secede and form their own state. Yes? As Noel Malcolm again points out, how strong is a state going to be if people are taught to think of it merely as a geographical area containing a certain number of human beings endowed with rights? If such a state holds in small nations against their will, it is likely to be weakened further by the reality that not all its citizens will in fact be loyal. And as the recent fates of Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia illustrate, a velvet divorce will have happier consequences than a loveless marriage maintained by force. It is probably no accident, as people used to say, that the United States, founded as it is upon the principle of popular consent, has unre until recently taken great care to inculcate the national language and a common culture in both immigrants and in native-born citizens. Now, this second answer financial flows it applies particularly, I think, to the EU. According to this answer, governments promote national solidarity first by transferring resources from favored to disadvantaged groups, and second, by encouraging all citizens to participate in entitlement programs like social security that, in their view, subtly promote an ethic of equal citizenship. Um, in Britain, the professor of social administration at LSE Richard Titmus became famous in the 60s for the remark, the use of social services is a badge of citizenship. As long as the state retains the fiscal ability to keep the checks flowing, it can maintain national cohesion 
without a shared national identity rooted in culture and language. I doubt that, but what happens anyway when the treasury runs out? The costs of financial flows are rising rapidly in the advanced world because of aging populations. Research shows that those paying the costs of financial flows are more willing to fund government transfers if they are linked to the recipients uh, by ties of sympathy and fellowship that exist in a shared national culture. The more diverse the society is, the less willing it is to spend money on welfare. In the new globalized economy, the fiscal cost of transfer payments, on the other hand, the fiscal costs are easier to avoid by immigration, capital flight, and the competition between governments to attract scarce capital investments. So the time gets nearer when financial flows, far from being a method of sustaining national harmony, will become a positive threat to it. Social democratic states are already responding to these pressures by seeking to ensure that neither individual nor corporate citizens can escape them. They seek to close tax havens, transform trade agreements into vehicles for, expand, for extending regulations. That's particularly true in the Brexit negotiations. Impose taxes on international financial flows, establish regulatory bodies that apply across nations, harmonize regulations upward in bodies like the EU, and so on. As a result, transnational bodies gain new powers, NGOs gain influence over more decisions, and international civil servants gain more profitable careers. It would be a rash man who bet against such a constellation of forces uh, and, and the global democracy they imply. In effect, governments are now for social democratic governments in Europe and elsewhere are now forming cartels, the EU as well, to maintain near monopoly prices for the services that they provide. But these large cartel structures suffer even more fiercely from the same defects as, as states organized on a purely economic basis. They are remote, they are undemocratic, they are unsupported, as we've seen, by a shared culture and language. Indeed, they are bitterly divided by these factors. So they are likely to exhibit even more um, physiparous tendencies than afflict the states forming them. What they will mainly transfer upwards is crises. Both transnational political structures, divorced from democratic consent and national political structures that are not rooted in the shared culture and language, are likely to prove fragile. And while they last, they will prove disruptive. Why governments and public intellectuals, why all of the movements on the left that we've been, I've been looking at feel that they're morally obliged to erect such states and agencies on the opposite assumptions is a mystery. If they stick to this course indefinitely, one day it will become a tragedy. And the emergence of nationalism is a sign that a lot of people increasingly realize that. Thank you.